Hello and welcome to Written in Uncertainty, an Elder Scrolls podcast sat firmly in the grey maybe of Tamriel and proud member of the Robots Radio podcast network. My name is Aramethius and today we're looking at one of the most influential yet obscure characters in the Elder Scrolls lore. This person has, if some texts are to be believed, formed multiple empires, committed acts of genocide against both elves and the land of Tamriel itself and possibly comes from the future. Today we're asking... Who is Palinol? Before we get into that though, I just want to say thank you ever so much to my latest patron, Stan, who has signed up to support this podcast at patreon.com forward slash written and uncertainty. Thank you ever so much for supporting me, Stan. I'm really glad that you find this content worth supporting. And do remember to drop in once this podcast is finished to check out the notes for the next podcast, which I will be kicking off fairly shortly. I also wanted to give a quick shout out to the Law Seekers Guild. I was in a law tavern chat with them last Sunday and we're looking to hold them on the last Sunday of every month where we can. It's basically a, a pretty much an open mic um, turn up and chat about law event that I've tried to kickstart with the guild. And so if you want to come along and chat law, join the Law Seekers and come along to those law taverns. And if you want to chat lore with me while I'm playing the games, I'm still playing The Elder Scrolls 3 Morrowind a little bit irregularly, but still playing it at twitch.tv forward slash Aramithius on what are Friday evenings for me, Friday afternoons for those of you on Eastern Time, and Friday, ooh, I imagine it'll be about, about mid-morning for those of you in the Pacific. But that's the times that I am to be on. Keep an eye on twitch.tv forward slash Aramithius and try and catch one in there. I will also be dropping alerts in the Written in Uncertainty Discord and links to all of this will be in the show notes alongside this episode. And now to Palinol. First of all, my usual disclaimer, this is my opinion on who Palinol is, was, and definitely not the whole truth of the matter. You may have other ideas, and if so, I would absolutely love to hear them. Please let me know on email at writtenanduncertaintypodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at Aramithius. And if you have any other questions that you'd like me to answer, please also feel free to email me at those addresses or anything you want me to look at in this cast. I would absolutely love to look into things for you. Now, we're going to be doing things a little differently this time, simply because there aren't that many texts that reference Pelinol directly. I think there's only about three or four. So, in discussing one of them, the kind of the central one, which is the Song of Pelinol, we'll probably cover the references to everything else. So, this was originally intended to be a close read of the single text, but I think I can probably cover pretty much everything to do with Pelinol going through that text so there are probably going to be many more digressions from the text than I usually do when I'm reading through a particular text but it will hopefully also cover precisely who Pelinol is and all the different angles. So the Song of Pelinol begins with an editor's note. Volumes 1 to 6 are taken from the so-called Roman manuscript located in the Imperial Library. It's the transcription of older fragments collected by an unknown scholar of the early Second Era. 
Beyond this, there is little known of the original sources of these fragments, some of which appear to be from the same period, perhaps even from the same manuscript. But as no scholarly consensus yet exists on dating these six fragments, no opinions will be offered here. So this is a collection of legends and rumours about Pelennol, and it's ones that are quite heavily removed from Pelennol's time. The Roman manuscript is not when it was written either. The name itself comes from a particular passage in one of the fragments which gives reference to Roman, which helps date that particular fragment to at least Roman's own time, if not slightly later. So that's why that naming convention is there and also why we've got this in fragmentary form and potentially also some contradictory places as well because there are some bits in this that don't really match up with each other but I'll be highlighting them as we go and just talking about the various contradictions and so on that we find as we get there. The Song of Pelennor, Volume 1, on his name. That he took the name Pelennor was passing strange, no matter his later subriquets, which were many. That's a passing reference to some of the things we see in the text before the ages of man. This is a reference to someone who wandered around, created empires, and then wandered off and they fell apart again. He gets called Hans the Fox and various other things as well in that particular text. Although that text also places him in the late Merithic period. Pelennor um, helped the Alessian Rebellion in the year 242 of the First Era, and the late Merithic was some distance away at that point. And he appears to Alessia at this point, so he's clearly been somewhere else or has been transported from somewhere, so or somewhen. So the references to it in Before the Ages of Man, I don't 100% know whether that's talking about someone else or whether that those subriquets are meant to be part of the same Pelennor and it's Before the Ages of Man that gets the date wrong. It's possible that that's what happens because Before the Ages of Man is a text that's attributed to a Telvani scholar who doesn't bother to give his sources, so it could very well have been poor scholarship. That was an elvish name, and Pelennor was a scourge of that race and not much given to irony. Pelennor was much too grim for that. Even in his youth he wore white hair, and trouble followed him. Perhaps his enemies named Pelennor in their own tongue, but that is doubtful, for it means glorious knight, and he was neither to them. I just want to pause here quickly um, and point out some of the linguistic bits here. That Pelennor as an Aldmeri term or an Elvish name isn't actually that weird because if you think about how the Needs built their civilization and built the first Cyrillic Empire after the rebellion, they were still worshipping Aldmeri gods as part of the transition, so to speak, the Eight Divines was a political fudge to try and get the Nords and the Needs to play nicely together on religious grounds. So if they are still worshipping elven deities, then I think it's quite likely they would possibly use elvish language as well. So I don't think it's that odd. 
One thing I think is odd from this particular passage is that even in youth he wore white hair. Now, we don't know anything about Palinal's youth, and the rebellion itself only lasts a year, so it's not like he aged measurably during the course of Alessia's rebellion. So why this text claims to know what Pelinor was like in his younger days is a bit strange. Certainly many others added to that name during his days in Tamriel. He was Pelinor the White Straight because of his left hand made of a killing light. He was Pelinor the Bloody for he drank it in victory. He was Pelinor the Surgeon because he gave the Crusades a face. He was Pelinor in triumph as the words eventually became synonymous and men-at-arms gave thanks to the eight when they saw his banner coming to war. He was Pelinor the blamer, for he was quick to admonish those allies that favoured tactics that ran counter to his, that is, sword theory, and he was Pelinor the third, though whether this was because some said he was a god-geyser who had incarnated twice before already, or that simpler, he was the third vision given to Perif and on Alessia in her prayers of liberation before he walked among the quarters of rebellion, is unknown. Now there's a fair amount I want to unpack here, so I might have to take you back through the text a bit. His left hand being made of a killing light, that gets compared to a lightsaber by quite a few of the fans. This is where several of the Pelinor from the future bits and pieces start coming from. There's a few other bits that we'll get to later in the text that also support that. But the idea of his left hand either carrying or being a lightsaber is part of that but I don't really think that that's entirely the case here personally because it feels like the hand is made of it rather than actually carrying it and holding it um, and it also feels like you could talk about it as lightning rather than a lightsaber as such and it's also a bit curious though and possibly a reason for the lightsaber metaphors given that Pelinor is ca constantly carrying around a sword and a mace so in his left hand if his sword is a killing light then it could very well be a sword made of light which is a lightsaber to be fair. The second thing that's odd about this is where the men-at-arms give thanks to the eight when they see him. Now, the eight divines don't exist yet, or at least not as we understand them. It's possible that this is an anachronism that's introduced through the fragment itself, that people gave thanks to the gods or something, um, rather than the eight as such in the original text or in the original context that is being talked about here. But it's also possible that the eight were simply the beings worshipped by the Adric aliads that were then co-opted by um, Alessia in her formation of the Eight Divines. Although Akatosh is a bit of a weird one there, which I, I'm sure I've talked about previously, but the idea of Akatosh and Oriel being the same thing as part of this pantheon or possibly being changed as part of what Alessia did in forming the Eight Divines is also something which makes me think this doesn't feel quite right. Uh, the idea of Pelinor being a god geyser in the later section of this is potentially also a nod to Pelinor being a Shezarine, 
that Pelinor is Lucan incarnate, that he has therefore been born twice before because there have been two other Shezarims, maybe. And then Perif spoke to the handmaiden again, eyes to the heavens which had not known kindness since the beginning of elven rule, and she spoke as a mortal whose kindle is beloved by the gods for its strength and weakness, a humility that can burn with metaphor and yet break easily and always, always doomed to end in death. And this is why those that let their souls burn away are beloved by the dragon and his kin. I'm just going to pause there. It's mid-sentence, but I'm going to pause there. Otherwise, there's going to be too much for me to talk about. But in this text, Alessia is praying to Mara. Mara is called the Handmaiden of Kine in some of the texts. I think Varieties of Faith is where that's mentioned explicitly. Um, and from that, we can get a bit of a handle on Pelinal's ancestry, which we'll get to in a bit. But just bear that one in mind, that, that Alessia is praying to Mara and is then answered by Kine in various ways later, that Akatosh isn't really involved yet, and we don't really see Akatosh until later in these narratives when he gives the Amnesty of Kings and so on. Another thing to bring out here is that whose kindle is beloved by the gods for its strength in weakness. That feels quite a bit like a Bible reference. Um, there's, I think, one of the Psalms, or Job maybe, um, where God says, my power is made perfect in weakness. Um or it might even be when he's commissioning Moses, because Moses says, you can't send me, I have a stutter, I can't speak for the people. And that's part of God's reasons as to why, that uh, in order to display God's power, he needs to have a weak vessel. And here it could be something similar, maybe, because you see Lorcan's plan in creating the Mundus is potentially so that humans can overcome their limits, can do things like attain Chim and move beyond to the Amaranth. And so in order to do all that, you need to have weaknesses, you need to have limits. And so it will be beloved to Lokan at least in order um, because of those weaknesses rather than anything else. Although by the gods, plural is a bit strange, if I'm honest because that would imply that more of the gods are on board with that, and there's no real indication that many of them are, except possibly Boethia, but that's a whole other can of worms. And she said, And this thing that I have thought of, I have named it, and I call it freedom, which I, which I think is just another word for Shazar who goes missing. You made the first rain at his sundering, and that is what I asked now for our alien masters, that we might sunder them fully and repay their cruelty by dispersing them to drown in the topol. Now this is a bit strange to people who hear it in a modern context, or at least a modern western context, if I can say it that way, but if you're listening to a podcast, then I can reasonably assume that you know what freedom is because of how people have talked about it even if you're possibly having some difficulty experiencing it yourself. But for this one, for this particular rebellion, we've 
got from some other texts that talk about the alien slaves only being allowed to name themselves in secret. And if you've got that level of oppression by the aliens, it doesn't strike me as a huge leap that they would have absolutely no idea of what freedom or independent thought or anything like that is. So I don't see it as that strange an idea. Now, this other point about Kine, you made the rain at his sundering. This is equating Shazar and Lorcan very explicitly because there's other accounts of Kine and Kinnereth weeping at Lorcan's death, or Shaw's death, rather, not Lorcan, sorry. Um, Shazar and Shaw are being treated as very much the same thing, but I'm not entirely sure how that would necessarily be the case in Alessia's time, particularly given that Kine is what's being prayed to rather than Kinnereth. It's possible that we are seeing another anachronism here in the text, that we're seeing the writer input Shazar where the original would have been sure. But it's in those myths about Kine that she cried when Shaw was killed by uh, Oriel as part of the creation of the world. And now back to Alessia's statement, which I cut off in the middle again. I'm terrible for this. I'm sorry. Mora House, your son, mighty and snorting, gore-horned, winged, when he next flies down. Let him bring us anger. And then Kine granted Paris another symbol, a diamond soaked red with the blood of elves, whose facets could unsector and form into a man whose every angle could cut her jailers, and a name, Pelin El, which is the star-made knight, and he was arrayed in armour from the future time. And first of all, just a quick nod to Morahouse here. Morahouse is the father of Minotaurs, and so my image of him at least has generally always been of some sort of winged minotaur, something that can grasp weapons, can fight, be on two legs, etc. But that's not necessarily what's happening here. We've just got a gore-horned winged bull, which doesn't link to the minotaur. It actually keys into um, an Akkadian or Sumerian um, myth. The Lamassu is the creature I'm after. And if you look at pictures of the Lamassu, then they are quadrupedal. They um, are things that have a man's face as well. They have a human face and wings, uh, but they're always on four legs. There's an implication later in the text, or, no, sorry, not later in the text, in Chimal Adabal, which is a ballad attributed to Morahouse, that Morahouse has a nose ring, which a Lamassu wouldn't have because the Lamassu has a human face. But a Lamassu is, I think, the point of origin for what Morahouse is. And the diamond soaked red in the blood of elves is a possible indication that Pelinol is the amulet of kings made into something, made into a person, that he essentially kind of folds out like a transformer from the diamond soaked red in the blood of elves. And so it's possible here that Pelinol is the amulet of kings personified in the way that this text phrases it. 
And we've also, at the end of this section, got another nod to what Pelinal is, why he could possibly be from the future, quite explicitly in this. He's arrayed in armour from the future time. That, And the fans have taken to considering Pelinal to be a Terminator within the Elder Scrolls because of the whole time travel aspect and the possibly robotic nature. The armour from the future time implies a different sort of metal and that sort of thing and the idea of him being the personified amulet of kings rather than a person again it's more robot fodder although in fairness um arrayed in armor from the future time we've had hints in some books that uh, it's a novel that i can't remember the name of i'm afraid um and some of the bits from the elder scrolls legends that hint that there was a time before metal armor roughly within recorded history that leather armor was um, much more common and the, the only armor available at certain points in Tamriel's history as well as Tamriel having gone through a bronze age um, according to some of the text that we see um, in the Elder Scrolls legends so it's possible that this is also simply a form of plate armor that wasn't available at that point in the first era although I don't know. A lot of the stuff we hear about Tamriel is, or the, the kind of the feeling I get about Tamriel and technological advancement is that it's sliding into a dark age, that you look at some of the earlier ages, granted a bit further on than this, and it's a kind of a golden age that you see all these advances. You have things like the Battle Spire, you have the Roman Empire going to Aetherius in things that, things that are very, very reminiscent of a space race and that doesn't tally with how things are within the games because it feels like they've regressed rather than progressing so having armor from the future that's more advanced than the stuff that you get at Alessia's time feels a bit out of kilter with that idea I suppose and to get back to the Tamriel from the future idea um, we have a quote from Michael Kirkbride on this in terms of his inspiration. Um, so to quote, Regarding Pelennol, his closest mythical model would be Gilgamesh, with a dash of a T-800 thrown in, and a full serving of brain fracture slaughterhouse antinomial kill three functions stuck in his hand or head. The T-800 idea there is what's given birth to the idea of Pelennol as a Terminator, but... Another angle that I've seen is having looked into the stories of Gilgamesh, it also feels quite similar to how this plays out. There are several mentions of things that are present in this text in Gilgamesh's stories as well. Most particularly, there's a winged bull and Gilgamesh rises up in rebellion against multiple people um, and tries to wipe out various people from uh, the face of the earth during his tales. So the sources for Pelennol are quite obvious if you know where to look. And he walked into the jungles of Sirod, already killing, Morahouse stamping at his side, froth bloody and bellowing from excitement because the Pelennol was come. And Pelennol came to Perif's camp of rebels, holding a sword and a mace, both encrusted with the smashed viscera of elven faces, feathers and magic beads which were the markings of the Aeliadun, 
stuck to the redness that hung from his weapons, and he lifted them, saying, These were their eastern chieftains, no longer full of their talking. That's quite an entry, but I've not got an awful lot else to say there, although there is a slight nod here, because it talks about the Pelennal was come. So is Pelennal possibly a title rather than a true name? I don't know. It's the only case where we see that definite article being used. So I'm not sure. It's it's a possibility. It would also explain why it's so much at odds with things like the elven etymology and that sort of thing. The Song of Pelennor, Volume 3, On His Enemy. Pelennor the White Strike was the enemy of all elf kind that lived in Syrod in those days. Mainly, though, he took it upon himself to slay the sorcerer kings of the Aelids in prearranged open combats rather than at war. The fields of rebellion he left to the growing armies of the Paravania and his bull nephew. I just want to pause here and say something about Syrod. I'm, I'm sorry I got things wrong mildly in my last cast in reference to this, that there's only one place that talks about Sirod. It's That's rubbish. I was talking about the Kim Adabal the ballad text there, and this text also talks about Sirod. So you have got more than just one text to take that name on. Pelennel called out Haramir of Copper and Tea into a duel at the Tor, that's Sancrator, probably, uh, which is also, incidentally, where Alessia received her visions from Akatosh, ironically, or from Kine, whoever that actually was, and ate his neck veins while screaming praise to Raman, a name that no one knew yet. And that last word, that yet, is a reason for the naming of the manuscript. The person who is writing this text knows who Raman is, and so it's very clear that this text is quite a way distant from Pelennol himself. Gorthar, the shaper's head, was smashed upon the goat-faced altar of the Ninindava, and in his wisdom Pelennol said a small plague spell to keep that evil from reforming by well-keened magic. Later that season, Pelennol slew Hathol on the granite steps of Kiatar, the Fire King's spears knowing their first refute. For a time, no weapon of the Aelids could pierce his armour, which Pelennor admitted was unlike any crafted by men, but would not say more when pressed. And this points to Pelennor being much more than a man, potentially. There's talk of him later as to precisely what being he is, but if he has access to things which aren't made by man, he's obviously not a man himself. When Huna, whom Pelennor raised from grain slave to hoplite and loved well, took death from an arrowhead made from the beak of Kelethiel the singer, the white strike went into his first madness. And this is another point where we feel like we should know more about Pelennor than we actually do. Uh, much as the first volume talks about his youth that we have no record of and should have no record of if he just unfolded from the Amulet of Kings like what happened in Volume 2, then he's had no real time to raise anyone from Grainslave to Hoplite. There's not been that passage of years, which is very, very odd, unless there's other sources 
that we haven't got that talk about Pelennor in some sort of earlier state. And potentially why, whenever I read this stuff, I tend to think of King Arthur as well as everything else, because it feels almost like there's people trying to add to Pelennor's legend or just adding little bits here and there that other people don't reference, and you then end up with different chronologies about who he was, what he was supposed to have done, and how he relates to everything around him, in the same way that you get different versions of Arthur from the two primary texts of King Arthur. And this other bit, Huna, it feels quite like um, Achilles, again, if we're going on classical inspirations for this stuff, because Achilles went nuts um, following the death of Patroclus in the Iliad and demanded that Hector face him for killing his friend. And there's also a bunch of later commentary which theorised that Achilles and Patroclus were homosexual lovers or something similar to that rather than just very good friends. And that's another potential piece of inspiration for what Pelennor was at least supposed to be. Some of the comments that Kirkbride's made on Reddit suggest that the text was changed from a hoplite who Pelennor often shared a tent with at night to a hoplite who Pelennor loved well, which definitely says something about Pelennor's sexuality and romantic feelings. That was removed because apparently they didn't want to make people who were doing the Knights of the Nine expansion and in a sense becoming Pelennor, um, having any particular implications for their own character's sexuality and way of thinking. But that was the original intent and now we've got the full set of why Pelennor is a gay cyborg is a thing because you've seen the references to the Terminator and you've now got the possible references um, to him being gay within this text as it was originally drafted. He brought destruction from Nalame all the way to Keledil and erased those lands from the maps of elves and men and all things in them, and Perif was forced to make sacrifice to the gods to keep them from leaving the earth in their disgust. And that's the first time we see anything about people being able to destroy land within the Elder Scrolls. It's something I don't think we've seen anywhere else either. Uh, feel free to correct me if you know any better. Please drop me a line wherever you can find me and let me know. Oh, sorry, no, I stand corrected. There was the Pankrata sword and Yokuda, which was a sword technique which was used to sink Yokuda. So it's possible that Pelennor was doing something similar although possibly doing it better, because instead of just sinking them, which in Yokuda's case um, took quite a while and there's still some bits left, this was just erased. It was just Thanos snap and gone. And then came the storming of White Gold, where the Aeliads had made a pact with the Aurorans of Meridia and summoned them and appointed the terrible and golden-hued half-elf Umaril the Unfeathered as their champion. And here's why... Meridia is not a good Daedra people because she was in league with the Aeliads 
and their demons are bad things. Well, not their demons, their Daedra are bad things. Now, also, Umaril was noted as half-elf here because he was only part Myr, if you believe some of the things that happen in one of the later fragments. It ties up quite well, and I'll talk about it a bit more then. But there's also another note here, which is a bit weird. That Umaral is unfeathered. Why pointing out that Umaral is unfeathered, I don't know. But it's possible that he just and didn't want to partake in the latest alien fashions of wearing feathers or something like that. But you'll also hear some notes that it's possible that um, the bird men encountered by Topal had something to do with the aliens. I'm not a huge fan of that idea myself, but I don't think we really have enough to say either way at this point. And for the first time since his coming, it was Pelinor who was called out to battle by another, for Umarol had the blood of the Arda and would never know death. And that's why he's half-elf, he's part-elf, part Arda, which makes him Pelinor's peer, I think is possibly the word I'm looking for here. Um, and we'll get more details of that later on in this text. Pelinor drove the sorcerer armies past the Niven, claiming all the eastern lands for the rebellion of the Paravania, and Kine had sent her rain to wash the blood from the villages and forts that no longer flew Aelid banners, for the armies of men needed to make camps of them as they went forward, and he broke the doors open for the prisoners of the Vahashte, with the slave queen flying on Mora House above them, and men called her the Alesh for the first time. There's some words that need unpacking here. Vahashte, or Vachte, or Vatashe, or however you pronounce it, it's V-A-H-T-A-C-H-E, I've been mangling it most magnificently, is a callback to some of the older naming conventions for the Myrrh. Uh, we see this in the book The Wild Elves, um, although ironically enough, the aliens don't get given um, a name that's the equivalent. Um, we only see that for the other types of elves. Um, the Bosma are the Boiche, the Salache are the Altma, Moriche are the Dunma, and thinking about it then, that would make Vachete, Vachiche, or something like that for the aliens. And we also got the first calling of Al-Esh for the first time. This means the High High. It's a title if you read into um, Kim Adabala Badad. Um, there's a whole section going into Alessia's various names, and Alesh is the first title from which the name Alessia itself is derived, and it just means the high high, which in some ways it calls back to Hebrew, because in Hebrew you say a word twice in order to emphasize it. Um, if you look, say, at one of the passages in Genesis 2, where the traditional rendering is if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. The, the actual Hebrew, it's, if you eat of this, you will die, die. It's saying the word twice for emphasis. And when God looks at creation and says it, and saw that it was good, or saw that it was very good, at the end of the sixth day, it's good, good, if memory serves. They say something twice for emphasis, and 
I think that's what's going on here, that there's the reiteration of the high high, as in highest, best, it's superlative, as well as possibly being literal, given that Alessia is riding on Mora House above everyone at this point. He entered the gate at missing to win back the hands of the thousands strong of Sador, a tribe now unknown but familiar in those days, which the Aeliad had said stolen in the night, two thousand hands that had he brought back in a wagon made of demon bone, whose wheels trailed the sounds of women when ill at heart. Text lost, and after the first pogrom, which consolidated the northern holdings for the men of Creeth, he stood with white hair gone brown with elf blood at the bridge of Heldon, where Paris Falconers had sent for the Nords, and they, looking at him, said that Shaw had returned, but he spat at their feet for profaning that name. This is also another suggestion that Pelinal could be a Chesarine. It's something that is something of a repeating motif within this and within fan commentary on Pelinal, which I've talked about in the episode about what Chesarines are, if you want my opinions on that, as well as Pelinal's relationship to what being a Chesarine is, check that one out. He led them away into the heart of the hinterland west to drive the aliens inward towards the Tower of White Gold, a slow retreating circle that could not understand the power of man's sudden liberty and what fury idea that brought. His mace crushed the thundernarks that Umaril sent as harriers of the rebellion's long march back south and east and carried Morahouse, breath of kine, to Zuarthas, the clever cutting man, a need with a kept name, for healing when the bull had fallen to a volley of bird beaks. Now, aside from the weird image of a volley of bird beaks and all the kind of the bird imagery that we're getting for the aliens from this text, I want to highlight one of Morahouse's titles here, Breath of Kine. This is a title that actually gets shared with another character in the Elder Scrolls, with King Wolfarth, of all people. So this is says something interesting about Wolfarth, quite apart from anything else, that Wolfarth possibly had some relationship with Kine or to Kine in terms of the things that he did and, and potentially... Um, potentially had done to him as well, given that he keeps coming back. It's possible that Wolfarth is something more than human, even just as Wolfarth, never mind all of the other shenanigans that happened to him with Zurin and Hjalti and all the rest of it. And throughout this passage, in the whole of Volume 4, actually, um, we've got lots of different pictures of all the different tribes of needs. We've got Keptu, we've got Men of Kreeth, um, later on, um, in I think this particular passage, well, there's talk about the men of Gay, um, but this shows that the Needs are not one unified people at all. That there, are however many different scattered tribes amongst the jungles of Cyrodiil, in a kind of a similar way that um, you've got different tribes in the Amazon rainforest and different parts of Papua New Guinea, that sort of thing. That there's not really much to necessarily unite the needs as the needs at this point. And of course, at the Council of Skiffs, where all of the Paravania's armies and all of the Nords shook with fear at the storming of white gold, so much so that the Alash herself counselled delay, Pelinal grew furious and made names of Umaril and made names of what cowards he thought he saw around him, 
and then made for the tower by himself, for Pelennor often acted without thought. And that there's a bit of a harbinger of things to come. The Song of Pelennor, Volume 5, On His Love of Morahouse. It is a solid truth that Morahouse was the son of Kine, but whether or not Pelennor was indeed the Chesarine is best left unsaid. For once Plontinu, who favoured the short sword, said it, and that night he was smothered by moths. It is famous, though, that the two talked of each other as family, with Morehouse as the lesser, and that Pelennor loved him and called him nephew, but these could be merely the fancies of immortals. Now, this starts to make a bit more sense if you think about the genealogy of Kine, because Kine is the wife of Shaw. And if you think about Shaw as brother to, or another aspect of, Shazar, Lorcan, whatever, then you can potentially see how if Pelennor was the Chesarine, was an aspect of Shazar, then he would call Morahouse nephew. And of course, nothing is confirmed here because you've got to keep things vague, that this could be merely the fancies of immortals. I don't know, it feels like the universe doth protest too much in trying to smother poor Plontinu for pointing it out. And moths know things because moths pick up, or at least certain types of moths, pick up the little bits of soul memory that um, ancestors leave as they die. And so they know an awful lot about what's going on. Never did Pelennor counsel Morahouse in time of war, for the manbull fought magnificently and led men well, and never resorted to madness, but the white straight did warn against the growing love with Perif. We are ardour more, and change things through love. We must take care, lest we beget more monsters on this earth. If you do not desist, she will take to you, and you will transform all Syrid if you do this. Now, Pelennor is calling himself an ardour here, which is a spirit. Which, etarda are the original spirits. It's not clear whether ardour and etarda are the same thing, but it's possible and particularly given that in the next section we'll see uh, Pelennor say things that are relate that relate him to Akatosh, so it's possible that he has some relation to the Etada. There's also part of me that thinks that the changing things through love is also some mention or reference to the creation of Mundus, that the Etada who take part in the creation of Mundus, changed each other and therefore changed the cosmos through everything that they did. But that's purely my feeling. I've got not a lot else to back that up. And to this the bull became shy, for he was a bull, and he felt his form too ugly for the Paravania at all times, especially when she disrobed for him. He snorted, though, and shook his nose-hoop into the light of the Secunda moon, and said, She is like this shine on my nose-hoop here. An accident sometimes, but whenever I move my head at night, she is there. And so you know what you ask is impossible. And this is why we get Minotaurs, folks. Because that love happened. The Song of Pelennor, Volume 6, On His Madness. And it is said that he emerged into the world like a Padmaic, that is, born by Scythus and all the forces of change therein. 
Still others, like Fifford of New Teed, say that beneath the Pelennal star armor was a chest that gaped open to show no heart, only a red rage shaped diamond fashion, singing like a mindless dragon, and that this was proof he was a myth echo, and that where he trod were shapes of the first urging. I want to stop there and unpack that a bit. I just felt like we needed to get all of it out. Pelennal is related to Sithis. Lokan is the son of Sithis, just to unpack that. And Pelennal is also a force for change. He's also related to Sithis and the Argonians, actually, in that sort of pattern. If you think about how he's presented in Before the Ages of Man, he gets to found empires which then crumble and need then get built up again and crumble and so on and so forth which feels very similar to how the Argonians function when they turn to worship Sithis they stay at a fairly constant level of technological development and kind of ever-changing stasis there's shifting between the tribes there's wars there's marriages but there's no real result at the end of it all but that feels to me very much like what's going on here and potentially why Pelennor is a really good example of something that's padamaic in that sense and related to Sithis particularly and we've also got another picture of what Pelennor is that Pelennor had a chest that gaped open and showed no heart which is a map of what Lokan is that Lokan had his heart torn out and the red rage shaped diamond fashion that contradicts some of the things that we saw earlier that the red diamond unfolded to become Pelennal this volume says effectively that the amulet of kings was embedded in his chest um, or something like that and it also brings some very similar pictures to Lokan's heart and the Amulet of Kings, it makes links between those quite heavy as far as I'm concerned. They're not exactly explicit, but I can't help but draw those parallels that the Amulet of Kings and Lokan's heart are linked, and that going a little beyond the Ballad of the Red Diamond as well, because there's parts of that particular text that I don't agree with. Um, but and there's also other things that say that the Amulet of Kings is Akatosh's blood rather than Lorcan's. But we also have Singing Like a Mindless Dragon here, that the diamond is also linked to dragons as well as Sithis and the Shizarine and everything else, which is just to me another nod that Akatosh and Lorcan are possibly two facets of the same being, which is just me being a conspiracy theorist but I think there's enough to back it up if you look elsewhere if you look back to my podcast on I think I cover it in the Lorcan episode I can't remember exactly either that or one of the ones that talks about Alduin and Akatosh as well and there's finally there's another term here which could do with a bit unpacking I think that idea of a myth echo it's an echo of a myth you take it literally it's a rebounding or retelling of a myth of the same story um, if you listen to some people they'll equate that with mantling to an extent the idea of if you walk like 
a god, they will eventually walk like you and you become that god. I don't necessarily think it's related to mantling myself, but I think there's power still to be drawn from that retelling or um, reenacting of a particular myth there. And it's also potentially more evidence that Pelinal is a Shezarine, that in being a myth echo, he's following Lorcan's or Shazar's way of doing things and carrying on that story in the way that I think that Shezarines or Eans in general do. Pelinal cared for none of this and killed any who would speak god logic except for Fair Perith, who he said enacts rather than talks, as language without exertion is dead witness. I want to draw a parallel here with the Gospels, um, that, imp well, not the Gospels precisely, the letter of James, the epistle of James, um, where faith without deeds is dead. This is just emphasising the idea that you don't speak of what you're not prepared to do, that you can't really talk about how gods work if you're not among the gods in some way which, again, kind of implies that Pelinal is among them because he's willing to do things with gods and on behalf of gods um, where others aren't. When those soldiers who heard him say this stared blankly, he laughed and swung his sword, running into the reign of Kine to slaughter their alien captives, screaming, O oh, Akka! For our shared madness I do this. I watch you watching me watching back. Umaril dares call us out, for that is how we made him. And again, we're seeing this multiple accounts of these different events that this is apparently after Umaril calls out Pelinol, um to come and face him. But we've got no real reference to how this links in with the previous volumes when it talks about Umaril calling out Pelinal in volume 4 this sort of thing never gets mentioned and we've also got another link um, between Pelinal and Akatosh and Lorcan where he says our shared madness uh, which is weird because Pelinal is linked to Lorcan very heavily within this text but there's nothing linking him to Akatosh, unless, of course, Lokan is Akatosh. Just to carry on hammering home my crackpot theories. And we also have the term Akka here, rather than Akatosh, which I think is the first time where we actually see anything like that. The notion of Akka or the Akatusk um, as being a distinct thing from Akatosh, I think originates in this text in how that stuff gets derived from, that um, you, Akatosh isn't the only god of time, is this idea, that Akatosh is, comes from a higher gradient time god entity that's called the Akatusk. Um, it's also referred to just as Akka, in quite a few places, most particularly the fights of the Aldudaga, which is an unlicensed text that Michael Kirkbride wrote. And so you'll see some people referencing that 
and linking that sort of an idea as well. But depends on quite what your mileage is with unlicensed text as to whether you believe that or not. And there's also another curious bit at the end of this statement that he says, for that's how we made him. That's how we, Aka and Pelinal, made Umaril. I honestly have no idea whether or not that's supposed to mean that Pelinal had some sort of role in the creation of the world or whether it's just something to do with how Pelinal sees destiny and their future and potentially how he engineered this encounter himself. I don't know. It doesn't really feel that way when you look at some of his later words because he expresses regret about Umaril. So I don't think it's meant to imply quite that. And it was during these fits of anger and nonsense that Pelinal would fall into the madness where whole swaths of land were devoured in divine rampage to become void. And Alessio would have to pray to the gods for their succour and they would reach down as one mind and soothe the white strake until he no longer had to kill the earth in whole. And this is another bit of evidence that what we're seeing here is not one complete narrative. We're seeing things being introduced as new concepts, like we've never heard of him destroying whole swaths of land, but we have in some of the previous volumes. So these are clearly separate accounts of Pelinal and what he did. So they're going to contradict, they're going to have different perspectives, and they're not going to quite match up. And notice with this text as well, bearing that in mind, what we said earlier about the divines, this doesn't mention the divines, it's just the gods. And so we've got potentially an earlier series of gods at work here, um, probably the Nords, if we're going with that, um, because we had the reign of Kine earlier. So it's possible that this text is working on the Nordic pantheon as its basis and is possibly at an earlier stage than volume one of this particular book. And Garrid of the Men of Gay once saw such a madness from afar and manoeuvred after it had abated to drink together with Pelinal, and he asked what such an affliction felt like, to which Pelinal could only answer, like when the dream no longer needs its dreamer. There's been a lot of speculation about that line as to what it means, how it links to anything. It kind of keys off an awful lot of words that Michael Kirkbride uses in his ideas of the Godhead and that sort of thing, um, possibly something to do with the idea of Anti-Chim and the Sharmat, who was called the False Dreamer, so I don't honestly know. It, some people have said it's possibly that um, Pelinal knew about Chim, because in order to attain Chim, you need to understand that the world is a dream, and you are both a person and a part of it, and so he potentially has that sort of understanding, which is quite a neat little take, actually, because when you look at what quite a few of the people who have attained Chim have done, or at least Tiber Septim, there's not many people who have attained Chim, but one of the things that Tiber Septim does when he attains Chim, or Talos does when he attains Chim, whichever name you want to put on it, um, he reshapes the land. 
And so it's possible that Palinol is using Chim in this way. But I don't know. It's It feels a bit too close for it to not be a possibility. But as with a lot of things here, it's far from certain. And why... And quite why um, you would have things about when a dream no longer needs its dreamer. That doesn't really map onto anything that we understand. The reason that it gets linked to anti-chim is because um, the Sharmat and people who try to, who attain anti-chim, as far as the community understands that, is that the person attaining anti-chim is trying to create a dream within the current dream. They're not trying to break off and create an entirely new thing like they do in Amaranth, but they're looking at the current dream saying, I'm going to make this all of me. And so that's potentially why it links with Antichim there, that if the dream no longer needs its original dreamer and someone is looking to become that dreamer, then you've potentially got Antichim. I... I feel like I possibly could explain that a little clearer, but this te this line frankly puzzles me because it links to so much. The Song of Pelinor, Volume 7, on his battle with Umaril and his dismemberment. Editor's note. This fragment comes from a manuscript recovered from the ruins of the Alessian Order's monastery at Lake Canulus, which dates it to sometime prior to the War of Righteousness, first era, year 2321. However, textual analysis suggests that this fragment actually preserves a very early form of the song, perhaps from the mid-6th century. And so, after many battles with Umaril's allies, where dead aurorans lay like candlelight around the throne, the Pelinol became surrounded by the last alien sorcerer kings and their demons, each one heavy with valiance. The white straight cracked the floor with his mace and they withdrew, and he said, Bring me Umaril that called me out. And while mighty in his aspect and wicked, deathless golden Umaril favoured ruin from afar over close combat, and so he tarried in the shadows of the White Tower before coming forth. More soldiers were sent against Palinol to die, and yet they managed to pierce his armour with axes and arrows, for Umaril had wrought each one by a long valiance, which he had been hoarding since his first issue of challenge. Presently the half-elf showed himself bathed in meridian light, and he listed his bloodline in the Aeliadun and spoke of his father, a god of the previous Kalpa's world river, and taking great delight in the heavy breathing of Pelinol, who finally bled. And I want to pause there, because this thing goes on into what's almost a continuous sentence, and I want to talk about the previous Kalpa's world river. This is part of the reason why Umaril is half-elven, that his father is a god of the previous Kalpa's world river, and I think it might also be a reference to Molag Baal, who has been called the king of the Drow or the chief of the Drow, um, who come from a previous Kalpa. So being a god of a previous Kalpa's world river and king of the Drow in a previous Kalpa makes me think, yeah, that kind of adds up to Molag Baal. Other than that, if it's not Molag Baal, which is purely me putting two and two together and possibly making seven. Um, we don't have much of an idea beyond what's in this text. And there's some text lost here, so that's a good point to pause. 
and Umaril was laid low, the angel face of his helm dented into an ugliness that made Pelinor laugh, and his unfeathered wings broken off with sword strokes delivered while Pelinor stood frothing above him insulting his ancestry and everyone else that took ship from old Elnafay, which angered the other elven kings and drove them to a madness of their own, and they fell on him speaking to their weapons, cutting Pelinor into eighths, while he roared in confusion which even the councils of Skift could hear. Text lost. Ran, one more shook the whole of the tower with mighty bashing from his horns the next morning, and some were slain in overabundance in the taking, and men looked for more aliens to kill, but Pelinor had left none save those kings and demons that had already begun to flee. And breathe. And pausing here again, this... Um, the insulting of everyone else who took ship from old Elnafay, that's insulting all of Myr, and it also implies that Tamriel is distinct from old Elnafay from Aldmeris, because that's saying that the people who sailed from Aldmeris to Tamriel are all Myr and they're all terrible, rather than old Elnafay becoming Tamriel, which is what the Anuad suggests, and some people believe. And cutting Pelinol into eighths is also important here because it's a number that the Aelids are apparently quite obsessed with if you listen to the Adabala um, and it's talked about a bit more there and they're cut into eighths because that's how the Aelids understand the world. They understand it's constructed out of eight gift limbs, the Etada, and it's what they modelled the wheel of the White Gold Tower on when they built the White Gold Tower. It was Morahouse who found the White Strake's head, which the kings had left to prove their deeds, and they spoke, and Pennell said things of regrets, but the rebellion had turned away, and more words were said between these immortals that even the Paravant would not deign to hear. You get some more details of that particular text in the Adabala. It's a prophecy that Pelinol had made a mistake and that Umaril would return, pretty much. It's also another thing as to why people think that Pelinol is some sort of cyborg rather than something that's necessarily human or something related to that because you don't start talking to severed heads that are normal. I don't think that's necessarily the case, because Pelinol calls himself an ardor, which is a spirit, and dismembered spirits may still live on. There's more answers out there than just he's a robot, but that's part of where that idea comes from, as well as some of the stuff we talked about earlier. The Song of Pelinol, Volume 8, on his revelation at the death of Alesh. Editor's Note. This is the oldest and most fragmentary of the existent, Pelinol texts. It is, however, likely closest to the original spoken or sung form of the song, and therefore has great value despite its brevity. Strangely, it appears that Pelinol is present at Alessia's deathbed, although he was killed by Umaril earlier in the saga, years before Alessia's death. Some scholars believe this fragment is not actually part of the Song of Pelinol, but most accept its authenticity, although there is still much debate as to its significance. And this is yet more of an idea of why I think that the Song of Pelinol isn't one unitary thing. It strikes me as a collection of tales 
that have been smashed together after the event and their tales that have been told that are quite contradictory in what they do and how they operate. They're trying to say things like how the stories of King Arthur conflict as well. It's also worth noting here, though, that the links between Pelinol and Lokan and Akatosh could also explain that particular idea because it was Akatosh giving the Amulet of Kings to Alessia that, and then Alessia becoming the first gem in the Amulet of Kings. That was in some tellings given at her original praying at Sancretor, but I can see it also fitting very well with the deathbed narrative here that Akatosh draws out his heart, um, which is Pelinol, which is the Amulet of Kings, and Pelinol is part of that because that's what he becomes and speaks through the amulet. We know that the amulet speaks itself from what we hear in Where Were You When the Dragon Broke, so that's not beyond the realms of possibility either. And so to this final fragment, which is frankly very strange, and left you to gather sinew with my other half, who will bring light thereby to that mortal idea that brings the gods great joy, that is freedom, which even the heavens do not truly know, which is why our father, the text lost, in those first days spirit swirls before convention, that which we echoed in our earthly madness, let us now take you up, we will show our true faces, which eat each other in amnesia each age. And now this to me is just all over saying that Akatosh and Lorcan are the same thing, Faces which are eating each other and forgetting about it. That's turning of the Kalper and all sorts of other stuff. Um, freedom, which the heavens do not truly know, is again Chim, that the gods can't achieve because Chim is about overcoming limits. And in order to overcome limits, you need to have limits. The gods are not limited because they're not bound by anything. And so they can't attain Chim. Um, quite whether Alessia had Chim, that's not something I can know about, but if these are the words of Pelinal, then I think this is another sign that he at least knew about the concept, even if he didn't have it himself. And where this talks of earthly madness as well, that's, that's Pelinal's madness, it's a reference to before creation, before convention, where everything was settled and mortality was established and so on, which is also a reference to Dragon Breaks. Dragon Breaks are the return to the Dawn, which is why the Alessian Order's Dragon Break is called the Middle Dawn. And so potentially what's going on here is that as Pelinal uncreates stuff, it's a return to things before creation, which I don't know quite what to make of that, but it also potentially links to Chim again, because the Sijic Endeavor is a return to the first brush of Anu Padme, which is again before creation. And I think with that taking up of Alessia and Pelinol acting as a psychopomp for some obscure reason, we're going to end it there. I do hope you've enjoyed this romp through the Song of Pelinol with me in all of its many contradictory facets. 
and possibilities that never really seem to go anywhere and also go everywhere at once. Thank you ever so much for taking the time to listen. And next week, we will be looking at another question which I have yet to decide. But do join me then. And until next time, this podcast remains a letter written in uncertainty. You've been listening to Written in Uncertainty, a podcast written and presented by Aaron Mithias. The music for this podcast has been kindly provided by Jan Glimbotsky. Check them out on SoundCloud under the Songs from the Lost Land, and I'll see you next time. Are you an avid player of the Elder Scrolls Online and looking to take your game to that next level? Well, the Red Diamond Courier Podcast is here to help. I'm Bob Chichinsky. And I'm Dogbark24. We are two experienced players aiming to help others learn and improve through in-game knowledge and references. From PvE. To PvP. And everything in between. There's sure to be something for you in the Red Diamond Courier. We We hope hope you check check us out. out. Thanks. Thanks! Should introduce myself. Um, I'm Corin Black, a humble half-demon, and folks around Baltimore call me the Devil's Runt. Here we go, finally moving again. How do you feel about methamphetamines? You know, devil's blood don't make you a devil. Under the Shroud. Fantasy, noir, and horror from Baltimore's sin-soaked streets. Find creator Ian Humphrey on Twitter at fictionalian.